This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. So good to have you along today. Beekeepers right across Australia are really nervous at the moment. They're waiting to hear if their industry and government departments think it's time to shift to management instead of eradication of the destructive varroa mite. And later this hour, you're going to hear from a Pemberton beekeeper who's been part of one of those really important industry meetings that have been held this week. That's after half past 12 today. Also today, as you heard in the news, the president of the WA Shearing Industry Association, Darren Spencer, is part of a delegation heading over to Canberra next week. There's going to be eight industry representatives from Western Australia heading over for this to speak directly to politicians about the government's policy to phase out the live sheep trade by sea. Darren Spencer says there are so many implications, just that domino effect for regional towns and communities, and you'll hear more from him here on The Country Hour today. Six past 12 on the ABC right across Western Australia and, of course, on the ABC Listen app. We'll head to the Kimberley right now because a pastoralist in this region has had enough of people randomly lighting fires and is calling on the government to act. Chris Towns manages GoGo Station in the Fitzroy Valley and says they've had to fight 16 fires this dry season, the latest burning for weeks through 17,000 hectares of fertile black soil grassland and red spinifex country. He says the deliberately lit fire destroyed habitats of native animals like the bridled nail-tail wallaby and the black-breasted button quail. We were notified that there were some cars travelling around lighting fires. So we interviewed with them and talked to them and um, asked them what they were doing and they just said they were travelling around looking for bush tucker and we asked them why they were lighting fires and their reason was there's too much long grass. So, yeah, just a common thing around here which doesn't get addressed really. That line that, oh, there's too much long grass, mm. how does that stack up to you? Oh, it gets pretty ordinary. Like, we, you know, around Gogo is probably one of the worst hit fire places, I think, in the in the northern area or around this Fitzroy area anyway, um, just because we've got so many communities. But, yeah, it gets annoying because you sort of get a good wet season, good grass, carry us through till next, you know, the wet, wet season, the next wet. Um, and if you don't get a big wet, it'll carry us through to the next year. But then, yeah, as soon as we get long grass, they burn it all the time. So that fire from last week, what kind of damage has it done? Yeah, well, it's burnt nearly 17,000 hectares around this area here. You know, you can run you know, your 1,500 head pretty much on that sort of area. So, you know, it's a big loss. Plus, you know, once you get those fires that are pretty hot, it takes a fair while for the grass to come back. We might be lucky this year in some ways because we might have a bit of moisture, but in any red country, um, yeah, it won't come back until it rains. So any of that feed that we did have there where it was a little bit of green pick and a little bit of long grass, well, you know, usually you can use a supplement with it to, you know, to make the most out of the grass, but if there's no grass there, it's yeah, not much good at all. How many deliberately lit fires do you reckon you've had just this dry season? Uh, we'd be probably up to 15... 16 fires so far this year. Some early on, 
yeah, most of them are just starting up now. Like, as you would have seen, there was one last night that started up. There was another one yesterday afternoon near the community between Bailu and Three Mile. We do report it to the police, but it's hard for them to do much with it because you've got to catch them in the act. When you say you've got people coming onto your country, can you explain that ill you are situation and how it works out here for someone who might not understand? So we have an Illua with the groups in the area, like Guni Andy, have, we got one with them. So the Illua is where we have an agreement with them, you know, where they can drive, um, areas they can go to. We have tracks nominated, um, but there's no lighting fires. Um, they've got to be control fires. There's no bringing firearms onto the place unless they're licensed and they've got permission from the, um, the owners. So, yeah, there's, there's a fair few rules in there, but the, one, the main one is that that we're dealing with now is fires, you know, there's no deliberately lit fires to be on the pastoral lease um, that the Ilya was on. So do you think that Ilya agreement's being violated fairly regularly? It, yeah, it is all the time, like it is this time of the year, and I think the younger generation coming through, I'm not sure whether they know about it, but that's up to the, the Guniandi leaders to push that across, not the pastors, because, you know, it's an agreement with the Indigenous groups. Um, so I think needs to be made more aware, but I think the government need to be you know, onto it more and enforce it more because we don't seem to have authority to do that much, really. Do you think if this kind of thing was happening in a, a different part of the state, there'd be more of a reaction to it from government? Uh, definitely. I think um, even though we're vast land, there's not as many houses around here, it's still valuable land uh, to the pastoralists. Um, and I think... You know, when you see down south when there's a little fire down there and there's bombers and planes putting them out and it's like 500 hectares or something like that, only a little little area, but, you know, they go find the people who lit that fire and they prosecute them, you know what I mean? And then, and you know, some of them go to jail, but up here it's people from the uh, Derby Shire. Like, if we want to light a fire out of season, we've got to go get a permit and then the permit has to... And, you know, same with the rangers, they've got to get a permit if they want to light fires. And if you don't, you know, we can get prosecuted for lighting fires out of season. But I just don't understand why there's not more of an issue around it. And, you know, there's plenty of signs on NAFI saying when they're lit and all that sort of stuff, and anyone can go on there. It just needs to be made more aware and people just need to act more on it, like in the, in the government system. You know, we try our hardest to do what we can to save grass and stuff like that, but we report them, but nothing ever happens. Even... When you approached the people the other day that were out just after that big fire started, what was the conversation like when they say, oh, we're lighting it because the grass is too long? When you say, oh, that's not the way that it works, what's the conversation from there? Uh, the conversation just gets probably more that they take the ownership and say, well, it's, you know, it's our country, we can do what they like, you know, that sort of attitude. And most of them are drinking and, you know, it's dangerous for our staff too, you know, you've got these drunken people driving around the stations and then they're lighting fires and, you know, if our fellas are in the wrong place and get jammed in the, somewhere where they get caught in a fire, you know, you, you never know what happens. Go Go Station Manager Chris Towns, 12 past 12 here on The Country Hour. Russell Junior Chestnut is a traditional owner and the coordinator of the Gunayandi Rangers who conduct annual burning over most of the Gogo Station country. In response to the claim traditional owners lit the fire because it's their country and they can do what they want, Junior says it's not that simple. 
I don't think that burning something, burning country because you can, means that you should. Most people that should be burning should be educated in some sort. An example of the Rangers is we are we educated in both worlds, so the Western world in training as well as our cultural knowledge, and we also implement our cultural and traditional our knowledge into our Western way of burning with our tools and our training as well. And just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Burning a long time can have really negative effects. You can you know, potentially burn your own house down, your own community down. You know, there's plants and animals that we try to protect as well as rangers, as well as plants and animals that have very strong cultural values. You know, like disturbing that balance of you know, fires and when the grass should be green and when the animals eat and they feed can disturb when they get fat, when they're ready to hunt, can disturb how they breed. So you might have a big bushfire that might you know, take out food for a particular animal that, that feeds off that grass. Like after that or before that, maybe the next year, the next season, they might not be fat, they might not be healthy, they might not breed because they've missed their cycle, their chance to feed properly, all that sort of stuff. Can you talk me through then the way that you as a ranger operate with your control burns, like at the time of year that you do them and, and the way that you conduct them? So there is multiple times of year to burn and that um, is because of the different fuels that we have, the other different fuel types that we have. So the majority of the fuel types that's highly flammable for us that's early in the year is the spinifex that we have. And you can burn that directly after the wet when there's still a lot of water around. They, they burn quite easily and quite heavily. So taking as much spinifex as you can at the right time is important as well. And then you can go back either to the same places or different areas to take out the rest of the fuels, whether it's grass or whether it's latent fuels, like old wood on the ground. And while you're doing that, you should be taking into consideration as well the plants and animals that breed and, and move and migrate at the different times of the year, the different seasons. So you might be burning straight after the wet in February, March or April, depending on how big the wet is. And then you might do like a little mid-year burn before uh, the wind picks up. That's where you've got the morning dews and the cool afternoons. That will make your grass green again. Cattle and the native animals can have green grass as well. You don't have to rely on the rain for your green grass. There'll always be moisture in the air and in the morning dews that'll, that'll green, uh, make your grass green. So for someone who might be listening to this and just says, oh, well, there's always going to be a tension between traditional owners and pastoralists in the case of white pastoralists because pastoralists want grass for their cattle operation and traditional owners are burning that grass you'd say that's completely not the case can you can you explain that yeah so i can speak from my personal experience from my ranger group and you know a few of the pastoralists that we have to work with that are now good friends and who was our partners that we may not have worked so openly um, in the past, but our connections as partners you know, are much stronger now. Um, I feel like our fire program or our, our way that we do our prescribed burning has kind of built that up as well as, you know, as, well as fire response, the way that we attack late season fires, bushfires, and, you know, and getting it under control uh, like reasonably quick so it doesn't spread too much and kind of yeah, like proving how we work that we are trained and we are educated in fire. You know, I feel like it made some of our partners feel a bit more comfortable with our firework. If Gogo's saying that people are going against breaching in breach of an Iluwa by 
coming out at this time of year and lighting a fire. Is that fair to say that that is a breach of the Uyua? Yes, you could look at it that way. But at the same time, like you can't really place, um, you know, the whole sort of corporation. Like if it's, you know, like Guniani people doing it on Guniani country, like we're not authorising it. So you can't really, can't you say it's like Guniani's fault. It's done to the, you know, like to the individual. There's always good, there's always bad. There's a bad apple in every bunch, right? So you could say to that individual, like hold that person accountable, talk to the police. We've got no issue with that. But to kind of get one person and use it as an example and put the title of Gunyandi can be maybe a little bit too far. Russell Junior Chestnut is a traditional owner and coordinator of the Gunyandi Rangers, and he was speaking to Alice Marshall. And Alice has done a great online story. It's up for you now if you'd like to go and have a look at it. And just take a look at the sort of country that they were talking about in WA's far north in the Kimberley region. Search ABC Rural and GoGo, G-O-G-O, ABC Rural and GoGo to check out Alice Marshall's story. 18 past 12. This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. The future of an oyster industry in Carnarvon is in doubt after Andrew and Nicola Forrest's Harvest Road Company pulled two hectares of oyster baskets out of the waters at the trial site. The oysters have been hit by a disease. And under the licence conditions, the company can't keep its oyster baskets in the water if it isn't actually growing any oysters. Peter DeCryfe is the ABC's reporter in the town and says the disease was caused by a parasite. It's a native species of Steinhausia, which is a sort of spore-forming parasite, which is found to be the cause in this case. There's lots of different species of it. Uh, They can affect things like egg production, appearance of the shellfish. This particular kind of parasite crops up all over the state. It's been found before in the Kimberley, Perth and great southern regions. And because it's sort of created this disease and it's made these these oysters not viable, the companies had to just sort of pull it and reassess. This is a, a parasite that just kind of exists within the natural environment really so the fact there's been an outbreak there's no sort of concerns from authorities around you know spread or anything like that there's no kind of biosecurity risk that's cropped up because of it it's something that you know other oyster trials occurring around the northwest would already have to be mindful of because it's not necessarily a uh parasite that's restricted to just here in the Gascoigne. The company Harvest Roads, uh, they provided a statement. They're saying they're assessing the potential for further aquaculture trials and research and development at its Carnarvon sites. But there's really, there's a lot of disappointment within that organisation right now after the years they've put into this uh, project. And so it's really just under a bit of a cloud, although the company says they're still committed to long-term development of aquaculture within WA. The ABC's Carnarvon-based reporter, Peter DeCryfe. 20 past 12 here on the Country Hour. In about 10 minutes, around about half past 12, checking in with the newsroom for the headlines, then it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. And shortly, taking a look at what makes a wine vegan. We'll get to that shortly. 
First, though, the president of the WA Shearing Industry Association is part of a delegation heading off to Canberra next week to speak directly to politicians about the government's policy to phase out the live sheep trade by sea. Darren Spencer says it's important the MPs understand what's at stake if the trade comes to an end. He says he's hoping to catch up with the Agriculture Minister, but really he's just hoping to get an audience with any MP that's prepared to listen. If we don't meet with the Minister, at least we could meet with some of the other members of Parliament and explain to them about the human element that's going to be affected with this policy and where we will be as an industry if this policy goes ahead. Is the best you can hope for a longer period of phase-out? Because they do seem committed to um, to getting rid of it. And unless there's a change of government, I suppose it will happen. Yeah, and that's the other thing we've been pushing for is a longer phase-out period. Now, we need to give growers time to change their structures in their farming practices. You know, what it's done with um, the announcement of it's caused so much trouble anyway with the amount of sheep that are stuck here due to the announcement of this and, and the leftover from COVID with the abattoirs not being able to kill all the sheep because they can't get enough staff. So we need a longer period. It baffles me why, you know, or why a government would want to put so many Australian people out of work by closing down this industry to then say all the abattoirs can handle it and then have to bring visa holders in to run the abattoirs because the workers out of the senior industry are not going into the meatworks. You know, the really disappointing part is that the minister won't doesn't even come and meet with us. Albo doesn't even come and meet with us either. You know, if they want to push a policy on that's going to put so many people out of work and destroy so many lives and industries and towns, you think they'd have enough guts to get up and stand up in front of the people that they're going to destroy. As far as our industry goes, you know, we could lose 15 to 25% of our work. And then we don't have continuity work for our workers. So, so what do they do? What do they do in the meantime? And these, these people just don't seem to care about that. You know, they're putting animal welfare in front of human welfare. We, we want to try and meet with as many ministers as we can to try and get our point across of what it's going to do to our towns and stuff. You know, a lot of shearing contractors are probably some of the bigger employees of employers in town of a lot of these small towns. And you take... You take a lot of them people out of these small towns, everyone suffers. Your Brodow suffers, your, your local IGA suffers, your, your schools suffer, you know, your sporting teams suffer. Everyone in these small towns suffer. We've, we suffer enough with government policy that doesn't come over the hill without another kick in the guts from it. Is it fair to say that those involved in the industry would take the view that as long as there's a demand and there's no sign that the demand in the Middle East is slackening off, Australia's the best place to, to meet that demand? Oh, most definitely. We've got the best animal welfare laws that there is and uh, everyone's on board with that. If we're not there, what's going, what's going to happen to the poor animals? Darren Spencer, who is president of the WA Shearing Industry Association, he was speaking to David Weber and Darren, as he was saying, off to Canberra next week with a, a delegation of eight people from Western Australia to catch up with the politicians and talk about the consequences that flow on domino effect if the live sheep trade does come to an end.
past 12. Just before the news at one o'clock today, speaking of sheep, we'll catch up with Danny Burkett and he'll go through this week's wool market, which was um, quite a contrast between east and west. The eastern market indicator is up four cents, closing at 1,131 cents a kilo clean. And here in the west, it was down 50 cents to close at 1,270 cents a kilo. Danny will go through what's going on in that scenario just before the news, that one. First, though, have you noticed that some wines are now marketed as vegan? And I guess if you have noticed that, you might be thinking, well, what sort of animal products are in the other wines that I drink? Well, the answer is most agents used to refine wine are remove unwanted material, are made from animal products. Animal finings have been used for a lot longer than vegan options and they also tend to be cheaper. Alexi Christides is a winemaker from Mount Barker in Western Australia's Great Southern Region. He doesn't use any fining agents at all, so his wines are marketed as naturally vegan. Uh, so for us, where we call ourselves minimal intervention winemakers, um, we essentially want to express the fruit with as few inputs as possible. So we take fruit, we let ferment happen naturally and we don't use any products like fining and we have minimal filtration in our wines as well. So can you explain a little bit about what you mean by you don't use finings and stuff like that? Yeah, so there's a myriad of fining products available um, to winemakers to um, clarify wines, so removing things like bitterness or astringency, removing colour or off odours or aromas. Um, we, we take a lot of care with our wine up front so that we don't have to use those products there's a lot available that you can use, but we will attempt to not use them just to express that full flavour and different flavour and maybe stylistically different. Uh, so fining products will pull different compounds from the wine that aren't necessarily attractive or you don't want them there. Uh, they do that by binding proteins in the wine with a particular fining agent and different fining agents work differently. So, you know, gelatin or isinglass or milk, they'll work differently to copper or pvpp there's a whole myriad of of products so these products like gelatin and milk proteins are they going to be in the final product no so they bind with the compounds you want out of the wine they drop out of the wine because they're they're heavier Um, wine is racked off and generally it's filtered beforehand so you won't get a trace of those in the wine so what's an example of a non-animal based finding Non-animal-based fining agent would be something like copper, for example, which is used to remove sort of pongy ferment smells that are based on sulphides um, out of out of wine. Uh, that's a non-animal-based uh, fining agent, but it doesn't work in the same method as, say, gelatin or, or milk or, or egg whites. There are um, commercially available vegan fining agents being made now, so people can use those instead of the animal-based products. Yeah, I think the difference between vegan and non-vegan wines would be the fining agents. Um, so, you know, fining agents based on fish, like isinglass or gelatin, uh, milk proteins, egg whites, they're all animal-based products. So, yeah, I'd say that'll be the difference. Have you noticed any change in the trends among vegan wines, wines that don't use finings in recent years? Uh, I've certainly seen a lot of marketed vegan wines on the shelf, like more in recent times. Potentially that's a, you know, they're from the bigger guys, so they're the ones generally with their finger on the pulse for what's selling and what's not um, and how to sell wine to people. So I'm assuming that they've got some research that says that's a good idea. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely more on the shelf. How aware do you think people are that 
most wines actually aren't vegan? Uh, it's a hard question. I'm not sure. I would, I would imagine the vegans would be aware, um, given they're aware of what they're eating and consuming and all that sort of stuff. So I would imagine they'd be aware. I think the general population probably neither here nor there. So this choice to not go down the fining path, what has that meant for you to not do that? Uh, it makes life harder um, and we have to stick to our guns. We want to express how the wine looks after a wild ferment. We don't want to muck around with it unless we have to. So it just makes life harder. We have to be cleaner. We have to be more um, on top of things. It's yeah, just basically harder. So if your inputs are a bit lower by not using this sort of agent, does it at least bring the cost of production down? Uh, not not necessarily. It's it's probably more time involved, and so your your, your costs your costs go up there. But um, as far as you know, per litre cost is not a huge input for us. And did you ever experiment with findings before deciding to not use them in your product? Uh, not not in our wines, but. Not, not for wines that have been released by us, but we have uh, looked at them and how they work uh, in the winery, but we don't use those wines for, for sale. So how common is it to come across people who don't use findings at all? I mean, in the people that we hang around with, we know a few because we're sort of like-minded. Um, it's definitely the minority, but you know, there's plenty of natural wine guys around the place that don't use findings at all. Alexi Christides from Machilari Wines speaking to Sophie Johnson. He doesn't use any fining agents at all in his products, therefore his wines are naturally vegan. Half past 12 here on the Country Hour. Jonathan Hopper in the studio. What's in the headlines, Jonathan? Good afternoon, Belinda. Australia just had its warmest winter on record based on mean temperatures. The Bureau of Meteorology's seasonal summary shows the national mean temperature was 1.53 degrees above the average from 1961 to 1990. The Bureau says most of Australia can also expect below average rainfall and warmer than usual temperatures for spring. Wreckfish West has welcomed an assessment of salmon stocks, which shows the fish are bigger, more abundant and more resistant to environmental change. The Department of Primary Industries assessment shows salmon are older, bigger and present in higher numbers than 10 to 15 years ago due to a reduction in commercial fishing pressure. The CEO of Wreckfish West says the science confirms what anglers have seen in recent seasons and has described it as a management success story. And the Health Minister Mark Butler says there will be a modest impact on the revenue of pharmacies as changes to to prescription rules come into effect. From today, doctors can provide patients with 60 days worth of some medication. Thanks, Belinda. Thank you for the update, Jonathan. 29 to 1. This week on Landline, we go down a potash mine. But what really blows my mind is the fact that this mineral coming out here will be exported to almost every continent. And behind the scenes at the cattle sales. We call it game day. So all the preparation that's gone on with our clients, working out our markets, what best suits, where we need to sell. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. 28 to 1 here on The Country Hour shortly, catching up with the Pemberton beekeeper who's been part of some important meetings this week, been a series of them this week as beekeepers right across the country feeling quite nervous right now and just wondering what the next step is, whether the industry and the government departments think it's time to sort of go to a management plan rather than trying to keep on about eradicating the destructive varroa mite. We'll find out what happened at that meeting shortly. And the wool market results, Danny Burkett going through that just before the news at 
one o'clock. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Joey Rawson is the first of those uh, series of fronts. Is that going through the Southwest Land Division this afternoon? It sure is, Belinda. Right now, it's just about to go through Bunbury and extend down into management. So it, it is uh, moving through. So, yeah, front one is on its way through, and the rainfall we're expecting out of that. It's around the 10 to 20 millimetres over the far southwest, but then as we push further inland, getting to the southwest half of the Great Southern, around that sort of Wajin, Kojin up area, maybe 5 to 10 millimetres out this out of this front, and then um, getting a little bit further inland, like Lake Crace, it's more around 1 to 5 millimetres, but then once you get to Meriden, you're looking at um, not getting much. So... Um, not bad through the far southwest, but it does drop off as you push further inland. We have another front on Saturday night, which it's similar in nature as far as the rainfall goes. Um, in rain, pretty good rainfall through the far southwest, but it's going to drop out as you move inland. But it's a little bit windier, this front. It's going to be quite gusty through um, you know, the southwest and southern parts of the state when it moves through. So uh, Father's Day Sunday morning, uh, it's going to be quite windy um, with that front. But as far as rainfall goes, it's going to push a little bit further inland. So, for example, on Saturday, Southern Cross uh, may receive a bit of a sprinkle um, when for this front that's moving through today, we're not going to receive anything. So, um, But the Great Southern, uh, one to five millimetres through parts like Lake Grace and um, uh, Kojinup. Um, but then as you move further to the southwest, um, we're certainly seeing a little bit more, potentially getting some falls up to around 30 millimetres you know, through the far southwest. And then we have another front on Sunday night, and that front is actually going to... Uh, push a little bit more um, rain to the central wheat belt and farming area. Um, there's a really cold mass of air that's moving in behind that front. So uh, Great Southern, around two to five millimetres, even further into the mid-north, we're going to uh, get maybe one or two millimetres and, and around five to ten millimetres through uh, the Great Southern. So um, more rainfall certainly pushing inland uh, with that front on Sunday. And then uh, it continues as another front on Monday, but um, that one's just going to speed past the south coast and, and just drop a couple of light showers, you know, through those farming areas. So not expecting much out of that. And and that's followed by another one. So, yeah, there's a whole gamut of fronts uh, that are approaching. But, um, yeah, there's a couple that may push a little bit of um, shower activity into, you know, that central wheat belt and Great Southern. But a lot of the action will be on the far southwest of the state and Belinda. And then taking a look at northern and eastern parts, what yeah, can you say? So that's uh, the same story is continuing, just uh, settled conditions and quite warm conditions. Uh, not expecting any rain for yeah northern and eastern parts, Belinda. And then any warnings today? Uh, nothing for today, but we have a range of um, strong wind warnings and gale warnings for uh, the west coast, basically south of Geraldton and stretching around through Perth to the Albany coast for tomorrow. So uh, there is going to be a fair bit of wind tomorrow on the water. Thank you so much, Joey. Appreciate that. 24 to 1. And once again, nowhere in Western Australia recorded any rain at all in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. Now, some beekeepers who've had hives destroyed to stop the spread of the varroa mite 
have decided to take out a class action. They're seeking up to $140 million in losses from the New South Wales government. It's estimated since the varroa mite was first detected in Australia, more than 40 million bees have been killed in New South Wales. Newcastle beekeeper Dolphy Banesh says the DPI's control program has crippled his small business. Basically, they arrived to the property to test them before. They found them clean, no aura. Then they came in, they called me and they said, we decided to come and kill your bees. I said, look, they don't have aura, so they decided to kill them anyway. And yeah, I know your wife, Shelley, mentioned yesterday, yep. like the day you came home, you had to like clean up, like we lost a lot of Yeah, look, uh, it was after a long weekend of hard work. The bees was loaded with honey, ready for the spring to swarm, and I was ready to expand the business to get more hives. And that's when I get a phone call. It's Sunday afternoon. We're going to come and kill your bees within a week time. Get ready. I wasn't there. I told them that when you come to kill my bees, you'll be like trespassers by the law. I won't be present there. My presidency will not be as approval to you. I won't sign any paperwork for you. Uh, I had a guard in place, and the guard basically asked them to leave. They came back from the police. Uh, they said they have a, a court order. The court order was faulty. They had a copy of the act, which is not a court order. They used the copy of the act as a court order, and they killed the bees. As soon as you don't have your own honey fresh to put on the table every week straight from the bees, this is our system basically, your sales drop by 50%. I think it'll be easy between the two to $300,000 per annum. Can you tell me a bit about the class action? Like, how did that come about? Did you approach, did you approach, did you approach? Class action came to me as human rights. When I encountered the problem, I realized this is not a problem of bees overall, this is human rights. Everybody should have the right to have bees in Australia, that's what I believe. And very quick I found that even if you have bees in Australia, not yours, they are government property, you have a license to manage them. And the government basically can come up anytime with any reason, take the property and say, right, we'll give you some compensation because we are entitled to give you what we want to give you, this is the law. And you don't have the right even to talk. Newcastle beekeeper Dolphy Banesh speaking to Helena Burke about a class action being launched after the Varroa outbreak. The New South Wales Department of Primary Industries says it is euthanizing hives to try and obtain the most accurate available picture of the mites' location, movement and containment. But hives in the red zones in almond areas in the south of New South Wales haven't been destroyed and they can be moved. 21 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, a number of emergency meetings are taking place at the moment between the beekeeping industry and government biosecurity representatives. The key question being asked at those national meetings is, when it comes to the varroa mite pest, is it time to switch from eradication to management? Maki Chinotta is a beekeeper based at Pemberton in WA's southwest. Maki, you've been the WA rep on one of those meetings. What's your answer to that question? Uh, look, um, from our per- perspective, I think that these decisions need to be driven by data. 
So um, as we've sort of heard in the news story beforehand, the DPI are um, doing the surveillance and euthanising hives to be able to gather that data to give us, I guess, the most informed decision or the most, uh, the most data possible to, to be able to make a decision based off of. So at this point in time, with the information that we've been presented, we would want to continue down the eradication path um, because the, the significance of Varroa becoming endemic on the East Coast will have national implications. Now, there was a meeting between all the chief plant biosecurity officers from around Australia. Have you heard if there has been some sort of outcome from that meeting? Look, I haven't heard anything um, specifically, but this this process is very detailed. So the New South Wales DPI is the lead agency. There are actually 26 parties which have signed on to the emergency plant pest response deed. So that's the beekeeping industry is just one of those 26 parties. It also includes all of the state governments and the federal government. And then the remaining parties are all of the pollination dependent industries that uh, require bees to be able to pollinate their crops. So um, crops like almonds and apples and avocados and, and so forth. So the decisions that are made at those national bodies are actually each industry only has one vote. So the beekeeping industries are just one of the 26 and that's because the funding for this response is jointly funded by all of the state governments, the federal government and all of the affected parties. So there's not one controlling organisation and any decision to change from eradication to containment or to management needs to be a unanimous decision amongst how, those um, those national bodies. How are you feeling at the moment? Because, I mean, this is all happening over in the eastern states at the moment, but how nervous is the industry here? How, how nervous are you at the moment? Oh, I'd be lying if we said we, we didn't have extreme levels of anxiety, um, partly because there's nothing that we can really do other than sit and watch. You know, it's it's absolutely um, devastating to see beekeepers um, facing what they're facing. Uh, but the reality is that they're taking a hit for the for the rest of the nation's beekeepers. So at the moment, the impact is extreme, but only on uh, a relatively small portion of the industry. And because the impact of Varroa can very quickly become a national issue, um, when you look at a cost-benefit analysis, you know, it's it's a still a far better outcome than should we move to management. Um, because if we if we think we're losing a lot of hives, you know, there's been about 28,000 beehives euthanised in this, uh, this response to date. Yeah, but we've only got to look at the losses in places like New Zealand and America. They're, they're losing up to 50% of their colonies annually due to varroa mites. So at the moment, I think that the colony losses are you know, less than 5% of the, t- of the nation's total beehives. If varroa becomes endemic, we're, we're not even scratching the surface as to what the impact will be on, on beehives and then also on what that'll mean for pollination of a lot of our food crops. So what's it going to mean for WA beekeepers if this fight against the varroa mite does switch from eradication to management? Uh, it's going to mean we've got a huge risk, uh, which is now presented, of varroa mite entering um, from the east-west freight link. So all of the trucks and mining gear and trains and transport that traverse the Nullarbor, that will become a very high risk point. Um, currently, you cannot move bees um, from the eastern states into WA. Uh, we have a, a biosecurity um, protection uh, to keep our, our bees in WA healthy because we, we do not have 
a lot of the pest and disease which is found on the east coast. But in saying that, we do have instances where feral swarms or swarms of bees uh, manage to make it across the east coast. Now, the diseases that they carry currently um, are nowhere near as severe as what uh, what varroa mite will be. So, so we have been working tirelessly um, as as an industry to try and get more protections put on that east coast uh, east west border. Um, in, in preparation for in the event of the worst-case scenario where, so is, where Varroa becomes endemic. Is WA prepared? Do you feel confident? Uh, look, if I'm being brutally honest, we're not. Um, not through lack of trying. Um, you know, we had a national blitz uh, where we, we encouraged beekeepers all over the, the nation to do alcohol washes, which is the primary um, detection tool for beekeepers to, to look for Varroa. And unfortunately, the uptake in WA as part of that program was was relatively poor. Well, why is that? So the, Isn't that? Well, that sounds crazy. I, I think it's complacency. Um, you know, we look at New South Wales. It's complacency that's led to Varroa becoming as established as what it is. If it, the reality is, and the data shows this categorically, is if beekeepers had have been doing the very basic alcohol washes, which are required under our national code of practice we would have picked up Varroa significantly earlier than what we did. And that would have given a lot of people a far better chance. We likely wouldn't be seeing these litigation cases. We, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're currently in. So we are pleading with WA beekeepers to do the minimum. And we are also at the same time working extremely hard to try and bolster the, the biosecurity border that we have with the East Coast. But it takes time. It takes investment of money. Um, you know, there's a whole heap of things that have to go right. So um, the time is ticking uh, because, you know, the reality is that the risk at the moment is growing and we really need people to get serious about biosecurity because otherwise we will be in a very, we may find ourselves in a very similar situation to New South Wales where where you're then scrambling to try and get on top of um, this deadly pest. So what do you think of the some of the beekeepers in the east who've had their hives destroyed now taking that class action, seeking up to $140 million in losses from the New South Wales government? Oh, look, you wouldn't wish it upon your worst enemy. I mean, I can understand that in a time like this, emotions run high and, you know, these people, a lot of them are just unlucky because of where they're geographically located. Um, you know, whether the government has been adequately compensating or not, I mean, that's, I'm not going to speculate on that, but I, I logically or rationally can't understand why government would, would deliberately open themselves up for that sort of litigation. I mean, a lot of these national response plans have been decided upon by the industries um, for, for many, many years. So, you know, we all had an opportunity to contribute to them. Um, so that, that's, you know, again, it's just, we would rather not be in that situation. My heart goes out to them, but like I said, at the moment, when you zoom out and you look at this in context, it's, it's a small portion of people which are, which are taking the majority of the blow and the costs to the industry and to the broader agricultural industry will be significantly greater. Like I can't stress just how, how big this can become based on, experiences all over the world if Varroa becomes established here in, in Australia. It, it will be massive. Mikey, really good to get your thoughts. Thank you so much. Not a problem. Thank you. Mikey Chinotta, he is a beekeeper from Pemberton in Western Australia's 
southwest. Twelve minutes to one. We'll catch up with Danny Burkett shortly. He's going to go through the wool market for you. First, though, the Dower and Machinery Field Day event has been on this week. And I know three people who went along and they were like kids in the candy shop. I'm talking about the ag machinery nerds at the Kandinan Group. Research manager Ben White, engineering manager Josh Gumelli and Farming Ahead editor Mark Saunders. Lucinda Joe's caught up with the three of them and she started by asking Mark Saunders what's caught his eye. Pretty lucky to see this machine here today, which is the uh, Fent Rogator. So that was previously brought in by uh, Croplands and it would have been in a yellow livery. Uh, so there's been a change of how that's distributed here in Australia. So now we have the Rogator branded as a Fent and it is, for all intents and purposes, a different machine. It's not just a case of it's been painted green. Uh, so yeah, we've got a 6,000 litre uh, self-propelled sprayer. We'll be hoping to uh, test it. We do a fair bit of testing with self-propelled sprayers, in particular the boom stability. And uh, yeah, it's great to see it here. First one that's in Australia here at Darren. Hi, uh, my name's Josh Jamelli and I'm the engineering manager for Condinan Group. Look, listen, I got a bit excited about a uh, product uh, that Gallagher have on offer. Um, they've had a couple of goes at this, but now this one looks reasonably commercial and it's a virtual fencing system. So it goes on a cow, hangs around its neck, it, bit hard to describe it looks a little bit like a handbag I suppose probably weighs a couple of kilos and it's got a um, like a chain that goes up around the cow's neck and then uh, sort of like a, um, a rubberized catch at the top that holds it on and uh, yeah it's a couple of solar panels and uh, a battery in the middle so yeah it's a first uh, I suppose readily available commercial one uh, that I've seen in the flesh handbags for cows how do they work generally virtual fencing systems uh, look at a GPS well have a GPS link uh, and there is a virtual line which is the fence and it works out whether the cow is on the right side of that fence and as the animal approaches the fence firstly it sounds an audible alarm so a little buzzer goes off to alert the animal it's getting close to the fence then if it gets a little bit too close to the fence it'll get a little electric shock and the animal in time learns that once the buzzer goes off, it needs to turn around and go back, so it's gone too far. So the virtual fencing technology, well, it's been around in theory for a few decades, but it hasn't been commercialised that well yet. And the, the beauty of this system, of course, is that you don't have to bury a wire in the ground. You can have a virtual line. That can then, of course, be shifted to allow grazing in a different area. And you know some systems may allow that virtual fencing to be moved to actually muster animals virtually so uh, I'm not sure if this system has that capability yet but uh, it's certainly pretty interesting and I think uh, you know at a cost of around $350 an animal you know it's, it's kind of getting there so uh, yeah it, it's, it's really quite exciting technology. Ben we're at Darren Field Days and we are next to your favourite or your <laughs> pick of the days what's this? Uh, we're looking at a uh, and the next evolution of uh, harvest weed seed control in um, a seed uh, terminator in this instance on, a, on X9 harvester, so one of the largest capacity harvesters uh, on the market today, fitted up with um, harvest weed seed control in the form of a weed seed mill, which has seen, I guess, an evolution in design, which is, which is good to see, and it's exciting to see that that's been continuing to evolve over time. What's different about this one compared to previous iterations? We've got one of the older ones behind us. 
Yeah, I think one of the, the, the key things that makes this a little bit different is, is well, the mill design is, is quite different. So they're smaller mills running at a higher speed, so 3,200 RPM, whereas the old ones were sort of circa 3,000. We've also got uh, integration into the ISO bus system, which is good to see. So integration of, of technology into systems that are already on the machine, good to see. And also uh, there's an actuator door on, on this particular setup, which means that you can bypass from the cabin without getting out and, and shifting things around. Ben White from the Kandinan Group and with field days over today, the Kandinan Group team get those machines all to themselves and they put some of them through their paces this morning. Eight minutes to one. Life aboard a live export ship isn't for everyone and it certainly isn't known for being glamorous. But there is an exception. Fiona Baird has been working on live cattle ships for 13 years. Good to see you both. Good to see you. How are you? Good to see you. Again. Beautiful. Got to have the hair high, the lips, and I take try to take care of myself. I'm an old woman now, and I still, but you know, I feel good, and I, I'm feminine. I love girly things. I love fashion, makeup. That's my background. So why not roll into the cattle ships with that? You know. So good to see you, mate. How are you? I've just kept it real for me and I thought, well, if I'm going to be good at this, everyone will get right behind me and if I'm no good, I'm sure I won't last very long. So here I am, still 13 years later. I had no idea that this sort of really existed. Uh, Working in the export yards, some of the exporters had mentioned to me, you should jump on a ship and give it a go. I think, you know, we think you'd be good. And that's how I started, is they put me on a ship. Um, I think I took... I can't remember now if it was 26,000 head up to Jakarta. I've been on boats where the captain wouldn't give me, wouldn't even converse with me. And um, I've ended up having to really run my own show. And it's hard when the captain's not on your side. That was back in the early days. And by the end of that voyage, I was cutting his hair and we were talking about each other's lives and we bonded. And he said to me, I'm so sorry. I've just never had a woman tell us what to do. So that was something I had to um, deal with and navigate in the early days, yeah. We'll run through a few bits and pieces. Thank you. Okay. So what have we got here, Chief? Perfect. Yep. Excellent. Okay. Okay, great. Yep, and we've got our space on each deck for our hospitals. Perfect. It's looking good. Been a nice load. The biggest myth of Australian live export is that the ships are death ships, which they are absolutely not, and that would just be bad business to put animals on a ship to just die. I think people are absolutely, absolutely the wrong idea about the actual vessels, and I wouldn't tolerate it if it was. I wouldn't be, I would be saying something, doing something as much as I could if it was like that, and it's not. And you can see more of that story featuring Fiona Baird on Landline this Sunday at half past 12 on ABC TV and then, of course, streaming on iView. Five to one.
Hello, I'm Samantha Donovan. Join me for The World Today. A crisis in Australia's foster care system. Why one group is predicting the nation could run out of carers within the decade. Shock, blame and anger in South Africa, with at least 74 people confirmed dead in the Johannesburg building fire. And a hunger strike, a rumoured sacking and now a defiant speech as the fallout continues in Spanish football's unwanted kiss scandal. Four minutes to one here on the Country Hour and a bit of a mixed bag at the wool sales this week. The Eastern Market Indicator is up four cents to close at 1,131 cents a kilogram clean and the Western Market Indicator is down 50 cents to close at 1,270 cents a kilo clean. Danny Burkett, what happened in the West this week? Oh, just important to note that it's the comparison against a fortnight ago with Fremantle not offering last week, but obviously the Eastern States did. Hence, we've only uh, we've only we've seen the East uh, indicator rise a touch and the West indicator fall away to make up for the lost ground last week. In Fremantle, 18 micron fell 50 over the two days to close at 14.85. 19 closed at 13.95. That was off 45 for the week. 20 microns, 13.05 on the close. They fell 70. 21s fell 65, 12.75. 22s fell 55, closing at 12.45. Now, if we look at these at a decile ranking in the last five years, 19 microns sits at the 14th decile point. So 86% of its time above today's price. 21 micron sits at the 22nd decile. So we've got 78% above today's price. If we look at that, though, using a 68% yielding merino fleecewool at 185 kilo bale weight, you nice sound wool. 18 micron will return you $1,870 a bale. 19 micron, $1,755 a bale. 20 microns, $1,640. 21s, $1,600. And 22s, $1,565. Pieces and bellies, fully firm on the first day in Fremantle. That the second day, the fine end fell 50 the mediums fell 20 on the second day. Interesting point to note, there is only roughly a dollar clean now difference in price between pieces and bellies on an 18 micron and 80 cents on a 20 micron. Historically, that is getting to a very low point. Oddments for the wheat fell 20 to 30 on the first day, remained unchanged on the second day. Some lambs wool, some washing lambs of 0.1, 0.2 VM starting to come across the market and they are trading at quite reasonable levels. VM persists across the country and I've been smashing on about this for months. Sydney, 3.2% average. Melbourne, 3.1%. Fremantle, 1.9%. So the two-tiered market we've seen in place for the higher VM, lower yielding wool still persist as some of those wools come out from hold and are offered into the market at the moment. Danny, when it comes to the buyers this week, any surprises? No, we've had the same top four. Uh, we've had PJ Morris, 14.8% of the Merino fleece wool. Devil Wool's 13.5%, Tech Wool 125 TNU 11%. If we look at that in countries, that's China taking 81% of the offering. That's 2% more than last year, but it is less wool than last year simply because of the less volume. India is taking 6%. That is 1% more than this time last year. Italy's on par at 4%. Czech Republic taking 2%, and that is 2% below where they have been this time last year, albeit all of those countries taking less wool, as I said, because less wool being offered on the market. And then looking ahead to next week, what have you got? 
Sydney, Melbourne, Fremantle, two-day sale in each centre, 45,500 bales on the market. Just the way the eastern states reacted this week, basically a firm market. Let's hopefully that will persist as we go into next week with roughly the same volume and a lower Australian dollar would always be welcome. Thank you so much for that, Danny. Just repeating here in the West, the Western market indicator down 50 cents this week to close at 1,270 cents a kilo clean. Good to talk to you today. Time for the news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.